Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. The opinions expressed in the following episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Minds of Madness podcast. Listener discretion is advised. Watch enough crime shows, and it doesn't take long to figure out the steps a killer will take to get away with murder. They stage the crime scene, they ditch the murder weapon, they fabricate an alibi, and at all costs, make sure to keep their mouths shut until the day they die. But in the case you're about to hear, the killer takes things a step further by actually manipulating information in the case file, all while hiding in plain sight for more than two decades. Join me now as we take a look at the murder of Sherry Rasmussen, a cold case that left detectives puzzled for 23 years. You'll hear how a breakthrough DNA discovery uncovered a decades-old conspiracy hidden among LA's finest and finally brought a murderer to justice. More than 50,000 pieces of art are stolen each year worldwide. Thefts, the FBI estimates, are valued between $4 and $6 billion. And with the price of fine art constantly rising, so are the number of people trying to steal it. While the number of art thieves are on the rise, the number of professionals dedicated to recovering the stolen art remains surprisingly small. For decades, the Los Angeles Police Department was the only municipal police force in the entire United States with a full-time detail dedicated to solving our crimes. And they even only had two detectives assigned to work the cases. Despite being a small team, they still managed to get big results, recovering nearly $4.5 million in stolen art each year. In June 2008, the two-man team was made up of lead detective Don Horisic and his sidekick and protege, 48-year-old Detective Stephanie Lazarus. Before finding Stephanie, Don had sifted through nearly a dozen other partners in his 14 years leading the art theft detail. But now that he had, he claimed she was the best of the whole lot. His hope was to teach her the ropes so she could take over for him one day when he retired. The particular crime they were investigating that day was an antique heist in West Hollywood. But it wasn't anything like Ocean's Eleven or the Thomas Crown Affair. It was just a classic smash and grab. The thieves had smashed through the drywall of an adjoining store under construction, loaded up a pickup truck, and drove away as quickly as they arrived. Stephanie never knew exactly what to expect when she arrived at a crime scene. Forgeries, heists, and frauds, she'd worked them all. 
Sometimes it was elegant and romantic, like recovering stolen or missing masterpieces. Other times, it was just simple low-rent burglaries like this one. Don and Stephanie managed to solve the case. An Armenian organized crime gang was responsible. When the gang's house was eventually raided, they discovered they were even using some of the antique Italian Renaissance-era furniture as actual furniture, having no clue how to sell such rare and unique items on the black market. Almost a year would pass before the thieves were successfully convicted at trial in May 2009. It wasn't a particularly glamorous job, but it was busts like this one that kept Stephanie Starr rising, earning her a reputation for being a fierce investigator with a talent for recovering stolen goods. Just weeks after the antique trial, Stephanie was approached at her desk by a homicide detective, asking if she could help him with a case he was working on. The detective's name was Dan Jaramillo, and he told Stephanie that an inmate who'd been arrested for extortion had started talking about stolen art. He asked Stephanie if she could talk to him to see if he was for real. Conveniently, the prisoner was being held in the same building, in the jail on the floor directly below them. Detective Jaramillo assured Stephanie it would only take five minutes of her time. She agreed to follow him down to an interview room. But when Stephanie walked into the room, there was another detective waiting. Detective Greg Stearns was already sitting at the interview table, and as Stephanie walked in, it was quickly revealed they weren't there to talk about stolen art. I don't want to talk about this in the squad room because I, I don't know who people are listening. And if we go to my side, everybody's yeah. always wondering what everybody okay, else is sure, doing. No okay. What the two detectives were actually doing was working a homicide, a fact they didn't reveal right away. We've been assigned a case that we've been looking at. Okay. okay. It's a new case, and reviewing the case, there's some notes uh, to see uh, as far as your name being mentioned. Do oh, you, okay. Do you know John Rutten? The name was a blast from Stephanie's past, a guy she dated more than 20 years ago. And because they'd mispronounced his last name, it seemed to take a few seconds for her to even register who they were talking about. John Rutten? Rutten. Right. Oh, yeah, I went to school with him. You did? Yeah. How long did you know him? Gosh, well, I went to school in, um, let's see, went to UCLA in 1978, I started, and met him at school at the dorms. Mm -hmm. Were you guys friends, close friends? Yeah, we were very close friends. I yeah? Mean, I mean, what's this all about? It's a case we're working on, and it involves John. Stephanie first met John Rutten while he was a sophomore studying mechanical engineering in the fall of 1978. The dorms at UCLA were co-ed, and they happened to be sharing the same floor, something that helped freshmen like Stephanie integrate with upperclassmen and campus social life. John was tall, athletic, smart, handsome, and Stephanie quickly developed a crush on him. But the feeling wasn't entirely mutual. Although they did casually date throughout their college years, they'd never been intimate. They were just seen as being very close friends. And although Stephanie always wanted more from the relationship, John kept her at an arm's length, at least romantically. It was kind of a weird relationship. I mean, we dated. Um, I can't say that he was my boyfriend. I don't know that he would consider me his girlfriend. We dated. We did things. I played sports in college. He played basketball. His brother played basketball. It, 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 we just, you know, it just didn't work out. After graduating in 1981, 
John became an engineer for a company called Data Products. Stephanie graduated the following year with her degree in political science and soon put in her application to join the LAPD at the beginning of 1983. As the interview continued on with the homicide detectives, Stephanie began asking why they were asking her these questions. Why did they want to know about ancient history? It's 2009 now. Had you ever met his wife? I may have. Do you know, do you remember her name or anything or? Um, um, or what she did for a living or where she worked or anything uh, about her? Well, I think she, I th I'm going to say that I think she was a nurse. Um, and I can't remember how he, he said he met her. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I mean, it's been so long ago. You know, I don't understand why you're talking about some guy I dated a million years ago. Well, do you know what happened to his wife? Yeah, I know she got killed. At this point in the interview, it begins to become clear. Detective Stearns and Jaramillo weren't there to talk about a new case at all. They were asking questions about an old case, an unsolved case since 1986, the mysterious death of John's wife, Sherry Rasmussen. Sherry Ray Rasmussen was born in Walla Walla, Washington in 1957 to parents Nels and Loretta Rasmussen. In 1961, Nels finished dental school and moved his family to Tucson, Arizona to open up his own practice. Sherry was such an exceptional student, teachers encouraged her parents to allow her to skip the seventh grade by taking classes over the summer. She'd also later skip her senior year of high school entirely, and at just 16, Sherry enrolled as a freshman at La Sierra College in California. Although Sherry's father was confident she could become a doctor, Sherry decided to pursue a career in nursing. And like everything else in Sherry's life, once she decided to pursue it, she excelled at it. After college graduation, Sherry earned her master's in nursing from UCLA while working as an RN at UCLA Medical Center. After completing her master's degree at 23, Sherry was promoted to head nurse of the hospital's coronary care unit. She was younger than almost every member of the nursing staff. By age 26, Sherry was promoted once again to nursing supervisor, and at 27, she was hired by another area hospital to be their nursing director for critical care. Such a high position for such a young age is practically unheard of. She would have been one of the youngest, possibly even the youngest nursing director in the country at that time. You could say, Sherry was becoming a rock star in the world of nursing. In May 1984, just three months after becoming nursing director, Sherry was invited to a party where she met John Rutten, and a year later, they were married. Instead of a ring, John bought Sherry a brand new silver BMW, a gesture she absolutely loved. The non-traditional display was just one of the several things that made Sherry's conservative family slightly skeptical of John. However, the one thing they didn't question was Sherry's judgment. After their wedding in November 1985, the successful couple spent their honeymoon in Jamaica. On the night of their third month wedding anniversary, John presented Sherry with a small bouquet of three roses, one for each month. Although private romantic gestures were common between them, they weren't shy to show their affection in public either. To anyone watching, Sherry and John were clearly a couple in love. 
This John was the same John who kept Stephanie Lazarus at arm's length all throughout college. The same John that never let their relationship amount to anything more than two close friends. And here he was now, head over heels in love with Sherry. The morning after their three-month anniversary, on February 24, 1986, John woke up and went to work shortly after 7 a.m. Although Sherry usually woke up with John in the mornings, she decided to call in sick that day and was still in bed when John left the condo. Throughout the day, John tried calling Sherry several times, but got no answer. He assumed she must have gone to work after all. After finishing work at 5 p.m., John ran a few errands on his way home. As he pulled into the driveway, John noticed something strange. The door to their two-car garage was wide open, and Sherry's BMW was nowhere to be seen. As John walked through the garage and into their living room, he discovered a horrific scene. The room appeared completely ransacked, drawers tipped over, a vase shattered, and the entertainment system was in shambles. And right there, in the middle of the entire mess, was Sherry, lying lifeless on the floor, her face bruised, bloodied, and her skin cold to the touch. She'd been shot three times in the chest, and on her left arm was a noticeable bruise, a bite mark made by her attacker. When emergency services arrived on the scene, Sherry was officially pronounced dead. She was only 29 years old. The scene in the living room left no doubt in detectives' minds. There had been an extremely violent struggle between Sherry and her attacker, or perhaps attackers. Although Sherry's murder happened a year before DNA would first be used in a criminal case, a good amount of forensic evidence was still collected at the scene, including blood, hair, and fiber samples. The bite mark on Sherry's left arm was also swapped for saliva, and a cast was made of the bite mark itself. After John was taken in for a police interview that same night, he was quickly ruled out as a suspect. That's when lead detective Lyle Meyer began pursuing the idea that Sherry's murder must have been the result of a robbery gone wrong. A stack of electronic equipment had been piled neatly in the living room, as if the thieves had been getting ready to walk out the door with it. Detectives believe Sherry must have surprised the intruder just as they were preparing to run off with the valuables. At the time of her death, Sherry was wearing a t-shirt, robe and underwear, which suggested she hadn't been expecting any visitors. Another interesting clue was that Sherry's prized BMW was missing. Apparently, whoever killed Sherry had also stolen her car, but hadn't driven it that far because it was found two weeks later, parked only a few miles away with the keys still in the ignition. For two months, the investigation seemed to lead nowhere, until one of the detectives caught a break, or at least they thought they had. Another house just blocks away from Sherry and John's condo was robbed, and there were a surprising number of similarities. The victim had come home to find two Latino-looking men inside her house, stacking up electronic equipment. When one of them pulled a gun on her, the woman immediately ran out of the house and the thieves followed behind, fleeing the scene without taking a single item. The gun, the stacked electronics, 
being surprised by the homeowner in the exact same neighborhood, the coincidences were too powerful to ignore. Police became convinced that two crimes had been related, and the two Latino men became the prime suspects in the Rasmussen homicide. But the two men would never be identified, and very few other leads or theories behind Sherry's murder had ever been explored or investigated by police. Sherry's murder would become just one more file on a growing pile of unsolved cases in Los Angeles. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people, and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. For the next 18 years, there was very little activity on Sherry's case file and almost zero progress. But in 2003, Sherry's file made it to the desk of a newly created cold case unit within the LAPD's Robbery and Homicide Division. Their job was to comb through old cold cases to see if any forensic evidence could now be tested with modern DNA technology. If there was, they could run them through the ever-expanding police database that might yield a match. In 2003, several items from the Rasmussen file were chosen to be tested for DNA, but the detective working the file noticed there was an anomaly in the evidence log. Comparing the list of forensic items taken from the crime scene to the list of evidence in storage, the saliva swab from the bite mark on Sherry's left arm was conspicuously missing. Over a year later, when a criminologist named Jennifer Francis was able to test the requested samples from Sherry's file, she saw the detective's note about the missing bite mark swab and made it her personal mission to locate it. It was the only item that would almost certainly contain the killer's DNA. But when Jennifer called the coroner's office to see if they still had the swab, they told her they didn't. The next day when she called, they gave her the same news. And then she had an idea, a long shot. Digging through the files, she found the name of the man who'd taken the swab and asked to speak with him directly. Amazingly, 19 years later, he was still working at the coroner's office, and he promised he'd do his best to track it down. It took the coroner's office more than six hours digging through their evidence freezer, but finally, they managed to locate the bite mark swab. It was in an old envelope. The handwriting faded, but Rasmussen was still barely legible on the front. When Jennifer tested the DNA and ran it through their database, there wasn't a match for anyone on file. However, the test did reveal one stunning revelation. The bite mark hadn't been made by a man. It had been made by a woman. Despite this massive break in the case, 
no further progress would be made on Sherry's file for another four years. In 2009, Detective Jim Nuttall with the Van Nuys Homicide Unit had a rare day without any new cases. So with nothing else pressing, he decided to crack open a cold case and have a look. As fate would have it, Sherry's case was the one he picked up, and one of the first things he noticed was Jennifer's discovery that the bite mark had been made by a woman. It was that fact that jumped off the page to him because it severely contradicted the prevailing theory that Sherry had been killed by a man or men in a burglary gone wrong. With this revelation, he knew he needed to rework the entire case from the beginning. And this time, he knew he was looking for a female suspect. So he poured over Sherry's file, looking for any clues that may have been overlooked. One person that looked like a possible suspect was a nurse who'd worked with Sherry. According to the file, there'd been some intense friction after Sherry decided not to give the nurse a promotion. And apparently it was so intense enough that a security report had been made with the hospital itself. He also noticed something else. Buried deep within the pages and pages of handwritten notes in Sherry's file was one seemingly innocuous note written almost two years after her murder. Dated November 19, 1987, the note simply read, John Rutten called, verified Stephanie Lazarus, P slash O, was former girlfriend. It was the only mention of Stephanie in the entire case file, and he had no idea what P slash O could possibly stand for. An ex-girlfriend and an angry nurse, it wasn't much to go on, but it was enough to get started. With the case now fully reopened, Detective Nettle decided to start from the beginning. He contacted John and asked him if he could re-interview him, and when he asked John about the note, about his former girlfriend Stephanie, he learned that P slash O stood for police officer. And if that wasn't surprising enough, John proceeded to tell him he'd already informed the original detectives about Stephanie. In fact, he told them about her on day one. But strangely, none of this was in Sherry's file. He'd also told them that even though he never believed Stephanie had anything to do with his wife's murder, she'd always been Sherry's father Nell's number one suspect. As you might expect, Nels was the next person on the detective's list to contact, and they were astounded by what he had to tell them. According to Nels, on the day after Sherry's murder, the very first thing he asked the lead detective was, have you checked out John's ex-girlfriend, the lady cop? Again, absolutely none of this was mentioned anywhere in Sherry's file. Of all the notes and audio recordings that have been taken of John and Nell's original interviews way back in the 80s, there wasn't a single mention of Stephanie. But according to both of them, Stephanie's name came up many times during the initial days of the investigation. But being that you're kind of used to see uh, John, you know, was it everything okay between you guys? I mean, there was never anything uncomfortable or anything between you and her? Um... You know, I don't know. I mean, it's God, it's been so many years. I mean, uncomfortable. I mean, I can't even remember if we had a conversation. I mean, we may have. I may have. 
I may have seen her at his apartment. You know, it, uh, geez, how many years ago is that? I don't even know what year she, you know, got killed. Well, how long was John married before his wife died? I couldn't. I have no idea. I have no idea. You're not sure where he moved to after he got married? No idea. I mean, Never I, went over to, to visit him or I don't think. I mean, I don't or, think so. I mean, um, I don't know. I, don't, I mean, I don't think I did. Listening to Stephanie during her interview with Detective Stearns and Jaramillo, it sounds like she can't possibly remember anything at all from so long ago. After uh, John's wife died, you said you may have been talking to him. Did uh, your relationship start up again? I would say no. Um, again, can you give me a year? I mean, this well, is like 2009. She died in 1986. Yeah, I think it was 1986. 1986. Okay. Um. Although Stephanie was acting like she couldn't possibly remember details from such ancient history, the detectives already knew a whole lot more than they were letting on. Notice how they pretended they were hazy on the exact year of Sherry's death. He died in 1986? Yeah, I think it was 1986. 1986. Okay. Um. At the very beginning of the interview, the detectives deliberately mispronounced John's last name. Do you know John Rutten? John Rutten? John Rutten? Rutten. Presenting themselves as detectives who didn't know much about the case, they were trying to get Stephanie to lower her guard. But despite her attempts at downplaying her and John's old relationship, Stearns and Jaramillo knew better, and they knew Stephanie's relationship with John had been anything but forgettable. When Detective Nuttall began reworking the case, he started piecing together a much more complex relationship between John and Stephanie than Sherry's homicide case file seemed to indicate. It was true, Stephanie and John had a very casual relationship throughout college, but after graduating, the relationship had escalated into an intimate one. And although each of them continued dating other people at the time, they would each see each other two to three times a month on average. This went on for several years until John met Sherry, and when Stephanie found out John intended on marrying her, Stephanie was utterly devastated. Just weeks after the engagement was announced, Stephanie called John sobbing. She said she needed to see him so they could talk. When John went over to her house, Stephanie confessed to him that after all these years, she'd been in love with him. That night, John and Stephanie were intimate one final time. The night ended with John telling Stephanie the relationship was over and he was marrying Sherry. Perhaps unsurprisingly, one last hurrah with John seemed to only fuel Stephanie's desire to get back together with him and thought she knew just how to do it. A couple months later, Stephanie walked into Glendale Adventist Hospital and marched up to Sherry's office. According to witnesses, she was wearing a highly provocative outfit. There she confronted Sherry and told her that John was still sleeping with her. And if she couldn't have John, no one could. When Sherry confronted John about it, he owned up to it and swore he'd have nothing more to do with Stephanie. And for a while, he lived up to his word. But that all changed around New Year's 1986 shortly after John and Sherry's wedding. Unannounced, 
Stephanie suddenly showed up at their condo asking John to wax her skis for her. Although John agreed, Sherry thought she was simply inventing innocent reasons to weasel her way back into John's life. When Stephanie came back days later to pick up her skis, again unannounced, Sherry was infuriated. But Stephanie's unexpected visits would soon turn from seemingly innocent to downright chilling. One morning after John left for work and Sherry was alone, she came downstairs to find Stephanie standing in her living room, in uniform and on duty. The purpose of the visit, or what words were exchanged, remains unknown. What we do know is that after the surprise visit, Sherry called her father Nels later that same day and through tears told him about John's ex-girlfriend. Perhaps the purpose of Stephanie's unexpected visit was to intimidate Sherry. Perhaps she was hoping to find John alone. Or perhaps she was staking out the inside of the condo. More shocking than any of these details themselves was that they were all missing from Sherry's case file. Even though John and Nels swore they told detectives all this information 21 years earlier. Someone, it seemed, had been making damn sure Stephanie's name stayed completely out of it. This alone seemed fishy, but it was another discovery that secured Stephanie's place squarely atop Detective Nuttall's suspect list, and it had to do with the murder weapon. It's not uncommon for LAPD officers to carry two guns. The first gun is called a duty gun, issued by the police department itself. The second is referred to a backup gun, purchased and owned by the officers themselves. 38 caliber revolvers, the same caliber that killed Sherry Rasmussen, an extremely popular choice for backup guns at the time. It was also the style of backup gun chosen by Stephanie. Interestingly, just two weeks after Sherry's murder, Stephanie filed a police report. Her car had been broken into, and among the items she claimed had been stolen was her 38 caliber backup revolver. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. The timing of the reported gun theft was too coincidental for Detective Nuttall to ignore. He knew in his gut Stephanie was attempting to distance herself from the one piece of evidence in 1986 that could have forensically tied her to the murder. But what she couldn't have predicted at the time was that DNA technology would completely revolutionize the world of crime scene investigation. One of the first things Detective Nuttall had to do was eliminate the other female suspect from the case. The nurse Sherry didn't promote. 
After a surveillance team secretly obtained a sample of her DNA, it was cross-referenced against the bite mark sample, and the results were negative. That meant there was only one suspect left, Stephanie, the hotshot art detective, the detective without a single blemish in her entire personnel record. By then, it was May 2009, the same month the gang of Armenian antique thieves Stephanie had busted would be found guilty at trial. It was also the month the surveillance team would collect her DNA from a discarded straw at a Costco food court. Immediately, the sample was sent to a lab to be tested, and the very next day the results were confirmed. It was a match. Stephanie Lazarus had been the one who'd bitten Sherry Rasmussen the morning she was murdered. And if she was the one who'd bitten her, she was the one that most likely murdered her. Following the breakthrough discovery, the case was handed over to Detectives Jaramillo and Stearns with the LAPD Robbery and Homicide Division. You know, as they processed everything, uh, they did the best they could at that time, and they looked at a lot of a lot of people and different things in this case. And you're right. I mean, if you guys are claiming that I'm a suspect, then, you know, I, I got a problem with, you know, with that. Okay. Okay? So... You know, if you're if you're doing this as an interrogation, you're saying, "Hey, I'm a suspect." Well, I, now I got a problem with you know. Now you're accusing me of this. Is that what you're Is that what you're saying? We're trying to figure out what happened, Stephanie. Uh, well, I'm. I was. You know, I'm just saying. You know, do I need to get a lawyer if you're accusing me of I this? Mean, you know, you don't have to. I mean, you know, I'm just, you're here of your own free will. I mean, no, you know, well, I, I know, but I mean, I mean you know you're, not, you're not under arrest. You can walk out. You can leave you whenever you like. Well, but, you know, I, I'm trying to give you some background of, you know, how I knew him. And now you're telling me that some somebody's saying that we had this big old fight and I don't even know what you're talking about. Um, you know, and I don't want to, you know, get in trouble for something that I didn't even do or you're saying I did something. OK, yeah, we understand. I mean, how would you guys like it if the tables were turned on you? I understand. No, um, no, that's what we're telling you. I mean, you're free to go whenever you want. If if this makes you uncomfortable and you want to, well, you want now to, you're starting to make me uncomfortable. The thing is, I mean, detectives did what they could at that time on the crime scene. Okay, and the burglary thing you're talking about—that is an angle that they looked at. Angle, but now we're looking at everything else on the case because nobody was ever arrested <laughs> on the case. Before their interview with Stephanie had even begun. The detectives knew they had Stephanie dead to rights. However, they wanted to give her enough rope to hang herself. Seeing how much she would be willing to say or not say before realizing she was, in fact, a suspect. Now, what we'd like to do is, obviously, you know about all the DNA stuff and things of the nature that, you know, gets done on cases nowadays. You know, if we asked you for a, a DNA swab, would you be willing to give us one? Maybe. Because now, 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 yeah, now, now I'm thinking I probably need to talk to a lawyer. Okay. I mean, don't get me wrong. You're right. I have been doing this a long time. Yeah. And, and I wish I had been recording this because now it sounds like, you know, there's, you know, you're selling these people say I'm fighting with her. And now <sighs> it sounds like you're trying to, you know, I've been doing this a long time. Yeah, we know. Okay. And, it, and now it almost sounds like you're trying to pin something on me. No, now no. I, I got that sense. Well, what it gets to on these on these cases, and you know it as well as I do. Our job is to identify and eliminate suspects. I can't believe this. So, if we ask you to the point to give us a DNA sample, a buccal swab, so we can identify or eliminate you, would you be willing to do that? Maybe. Because well, I know this. I, 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 well, that's where we're at, too. I mean, because right now, 
from looking at the evidence, it's, you know, it's possible we may have some DNA at the location. That's great. And we're going to do what we can to try to put this thing together. And your name's in the book. These people are pointing at you for whatever reason. I don't know why. That's just crazy. I mean, that's just, that's absolutely crazy. And it would be irresponsible on our part not to look at it. I know. You guys have to do your job. And and I guess I'm going to have to contact somebody. So That's fair. I mean, because I I know how this stuff works. I mean, I, 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 I just can't believe it. That's, I, I mean, we, we understand that. I mean, if we were in your position, I mean, we would feel the same way. I just can't even believe it. I mean, it's just, I, I mean, I'm shocked. I'm really shocked that somebody would be blame, saying that I did this. I mean, we had a fight, and so I went and killed her. I mean, come on. Well, That's. Okay. All right. Well, thanks for giving me the courtesy. Throughout the interview, the detectives insisted Stephanie was free to go at any time. And after an hour, when she realized she was indeed a suspect in Sherry's murder, she decided to take them up on it and ended the interview. What she didn't know at that time was that officers were stationed out in the hallway ready to arrest her, regardless of what she said during the interview itself. Stephanie, you know you have the right to remain silent. Do you understand? Yes. Anything you say may be used against you in court. Do you understand? Yes. You have the right to the presence of an attorney before and during any questioning. Do you understand? Yes. If you cannot afford an attorney, one will be appointed for you free of charge before any questioning if you want. Do you understand? Yes. Do you want to talk to us right now? No. <laughs> okay. All right. Okay. This then. is crazy. Okay. This is absolutely... I'm like, I'm like in shock. I'm totally in shock. More than 23 years after the murder of Sherry Rasmussen, her killer was finally arrested. And although Stephanie had always strenuously maintained her innocence, the bite mark DNA evidence was just too powerful when her case went before a jury in 2012, and Stephanie was found guilty and sentenced to 27 years to life in prison. After sneaking into the condo, Stephanie murders Sherry in cold blood and then staged the crime scene using her police knowledge to make sure it looked like a robbery gone wrong. And for 23 years, it worked. During her trial, Stephanie's lawyers tried to cast doubt on the veracity of the bite mark swab, citing improper evidence handling and pointing toward the poor condition of the evidence envelope it was discovered in. Which brings us to an interesting twist in the case. Nels Rasmussen had always been convinced Stephanie was behind his daughter's murder. In 1993, he even offered to personally cover the costs for DNA testing related to Sherry's case, including a box of what was considered trace evidence from the scene, hairs and fibers taken from Sherry's body. Now that DNA technology had evolved, it was possible this trace evidence contained the killer's DNA. However, shortly after Nell's request, a detective named Phil Morritt checked out the evidence box from the coroner's office, and it was never returned and is still missing to this day. Although there's never been an official explanation to how the evidence mysteriously vanished, it's an extraordinary stroke of luck for justice the bite mark swab had been accidentally misplaced. Because without the bite mark swab, Sherry's murder, in all likelihood, would have never been solved. There's one more aspect of this case that remains a mystery, the cover-up. 
Why wasn't Stephanie's name mentioned in Sherry's case file? Despite the fact she was heavily mentioned by both Nels and John during their original interviews. And what really happened to the missing box of trace evidence? In the LAPD's homicide case files, all of the handwritten notes meticulously taken by detectives during an investigation are eventually typed up in various reports. These typed reports are supposed to be a 100% exact replica of the handwritten notes. Both sets of reports are supposed to be included in the case file. However, in Sherry's file, all the handwritten notes from the first three months of the investigation mysteriously disappeared, with only one typed copy remaining. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. There's no way to know if the original notes contained references to Stephanie and were admitted when they were typed up. One thing we do know for sure is that for nearly two decades, as an LAPD detective, Stephanie would have had access to Sherry's file whenever she wanted. It's entirely plausible she'd been a lone wolf, covering up her tracks throughout the years at every opportunity. Even so, the possibility of a vast, systematic cover-up has also been alleged. Because of these allegations, the LAPD conducted an internal affairs investigation to look into claims of a systematic cover-up. But after two years, ultimately no evidence of wrongdoing was found on the part of the LAPD. Having said that, upon closer inspection, during those entire two years, the agent looking into the case only spent 6.8 hours total looking into it. Four of those hours were spent typing up the final report. I'd like to thank the following Patreon supporters. Crystal Y, Jennifer A, Courtney, Cash B, Danielle D, Cecilia C, Nicole K, John W, Amanda, Penny G, Kristen P, Den H, Chelsea B, Melinda W, Lindsay B, Lisa P, Fuad F, Carol W, Katie K, Lucy C, Judy L, Victoria, Ryan M, Becky G, Kelsey P, Chris C, and Mira A. Follow The Minds of Madness on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, and all other podcast platforms. 
If you'd like to support this show and get some extra perks, like early release and ad-free episodes, go to patreon.com slash madnesspod. Our website can be found at mindsofmadnesspodcast.com. To find us on Facebook and Instagram, search The Minds of Madness, and on Twitter using the handle at madnesspod. To listen to The Minds of Madness and other Wondery shows ad-free, start your free trial of Wondery Plus at wonderyplus.com slash madness. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.